Uh, Good morning, grab your Bibles out and turn them to Matthew chapter 1, if you can, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you're visiting here today or it's your first time or you've just sort of uh, been away for a bit, um, last week we started a new teaching series called Threads of Scandalous Grace and we are tracing over five weeks five different women in particular that Matthew makes mention of in uh, what's called the, the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 1. And I'm just going to read, um, well, really just the beginning, uh, three verses, the beginning of verse 3 included. Last week, we started the series by looking at Mary, who was a very unlikely girl. Now we're going to jump right back to the very beginning of the genealogy, and we're going to pick up uh, the next thread of scandalous grace that Matthew records for us. So let's just set our um, memories back a little bit and we're going to pick up the story of Tamar. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible and it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. All right, the story of Tamar. You may or may not be very familiar with Tamar's story. She doesn't get a lot of spotlight attention in the Bible. Um, But if you go searching, there's references to her. And in fact, we're going to read an entire chapter in a little while, which gives us the story that she is in, even though there's all these different circumstances surrounding her that she seems to have very little control over. Tamar is by no means um, a secondary character in it. However, to frame the story of Tamar in the right context, we need to jump back to Judah's great-grandfather, Abraham, and pick up what I think is a really important thread that needs to be pulled on a little bit. We're going to need a lot of God's help, both in the hearing of this story and I certainly do in the telling of it. And so let's ask him. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we've come not to hear the voice of any man or any woman. We just want to hear what you have to say today. So we're going to read your word. It's more than just ink on the page or pixels on a screen. It is life transforming. It is the words of eternal life. So, Lord, change our lives. Shape us for eternity through what you have to say today. In your own name we pray it. Amen. All right, so let's just pull on this thread a little bit. We'll get to Tamar, but we've got to backtrack in the genealogy a little bit. Remember from Matthew chapter 1? Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. So we've got to jump back some generations here. And just pick up a really important thread that I think helps us make sense of a somewhat confronting and, let's be honest, pretty confusing story of Tamar for anyone that's jumped ahead and read it. So Abraham, let's think about Abraham for a moment. Abraham had been set aside by God, told to travel to the land that he would be shown when he left the land that he lived in. God didn't tell him where he was going. And God promised Abraham that he would bless him with a large family that would one day bless the entire world. And of course, Abraham, for those of you who may remember, Abraham, his wife Sarah, were childless. In fact, it says Sarah was barren, couldn't have children. Abraham was old, both of them. And it looked like it would be completely impossible for this to ever happen. But nonetheless, do you remember the famous story? God calls Abram outside of his tent. Look up in the sky, Abram. Count the stars. Abram says, that's impossible. Can't be done. 
God says, exactly. That's how many children I'm going to bless you with. And your children will one day bless the entire world. There's this big binding promise. The Bible calls it a covenant. It's more than just a promise. You know, I promise that I'll do something. I promise, honey, I won't forget to unpack the dishwasher. You know, those sorts of promises are pretty easy to make and pretty easy to break, right? Um, But God makes a binding legal promise, a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant may be broken by Abraham's line. God says, you may be unfaithful, but God says, I will never break that covenant. Right? I will always fulfill my part of the deal with this. One way or another, God will fulfill his blessing through Abraham to the entire world. That's God's covenant blessing with Abraham. And so by a miracle, the childless couple, Abraham and Sarah, give birth to a son. The blessing would flow down through the generations from father to son, usually the firstborn son. So from Abraham receiving the blessing from God, now the blessing is inherited by his son, Isaac. So now Isaac inherits the blessings of God's promise, God's covenant promise. So let's fast forward a bit. Eventually, Isaac is married. That was an ordeal. And he has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the eldest son and therefore was in line to receive the blessings from his father. But Jacob, the younger son, deceives his brother and tricks him into exchanging his birthright of blessing for what? You remember? A bowl of soup. Esau loved good soup. Also helps when you're starving to death. All right? Then, with his mother's help, by the way, he also deceives his father and he receives the inherited blessing of God. So now, Jacob, the deceiver, that's what his name means, Jacob, the deceiver, inherits the blessing of God's covenant promise. It's moved from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. Now, eventually, and only after Jacob had come to terms with his deception and literally had to wrestle with God, God changes Jacob's name and he says, you're no longer the deceiver. And he gives them a new name. Jacob's name changes from Jacob to Israel. That's what Jacob's name becomes. Israel fathers 12 sons, of which Judah is the fourth in line. All right? Fourth eldest. But by the failings of the first three brothers, we're not going to go into what they were, but by the failings of the first three brothers, Judah eventually receives the blessing which is passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob or Israel. And now the covenant blessing of God rests on Judah. This blessing, the the covenant promise that God makes is absolutely central to understanding the story of Tamar. Everything pivots on this idea of inherited blessing. All right. The story of Tamar is found in Genesis 38. So why don't you grab in your Bibles and find Genesis 38. We'll read it shortly, not yet. But just go ahead and find it. The story of Tamar is found in Genesis chapter 38. But it is, in fact, really an interruption to a much better known story. 
Um, I want to ask you to put your hands up, but it's pretty common to have a chat with people and they go, Tamar, Tamar. That name's sort of familiar. Um, I think I know a little bit about Tamar. I'm not really sure. In fact, there's a couple of Tamars in the Bible. Um, which Tamar are we talking about? But I bet you if I tell you, say, hey, have you heard about Joseph? Most people go, oh, yeah. You don't know about Joseph. Technicolor dream coat and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, the story of Tamar is an interruption to the story of Joseph. Right? So there's this very famous story of Joseph's childhood, right? How his brothers were jealous of him, the dreams that Joseph had, the fact that his dad made him a really special coat, whether it was multicolored or long-sleeved or something very special about it. And his brothers become jealous. They actually plot to kill him. Like this is no serious sort of no no sort of normal sibling rivalry thing happening here. This is like serious. Let's kill this guy, right? We're sick of him. Uh, eventually, through the intervention of a couple of people in the family, um, they decide not to kill him. Instead, what all good brothers might like to do to their little brothers is let's sell him into slavery to another country. Um, by the way. That's Judah's idea, if you read the story. Um, so he's imprisoned in a pit. Now, we know the story moves from that pit, sold to Midianite travellers who take Joseph to Egypt. Egypt. In Egypt, he's put in prison, sold as a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, she's, um, she's a bit sly, and not real faithful to Potiphar, and she tries to sleep with Joseph, and Joseph refuses, he honours his God, and God blesses him, and he eventually rises to power, eventually saves the nation of Egypt, saves his brothers and his family from famine. It's a, it's a fantastic story, right? But right in the middle of that famous story sits another story, the lesser-known story of Tamar. And so just after Joseph was sold into slavery, remember, Judah's idea, the same older brother, Judah, takes off from the family to go find himself a wife. And we're going to pick up from that point in Genesis chapter 38. Now, I want to make a little editorial comment here, just for, especially for parents. Um, let me give a content warning up front. Tamar's story is a serious mess. All right? It is full of family dysfunction. It contains sexual misconduct, moral dilemmas, and somewhat confronting details. So if you're a parent here and you have little children that are gone or they're in or there's teenagers or whatever you're, you're concerned, let me assure you I intend to be no more graphic than what the Bible is. But let me just be fair. If you haven't read the story, there's going to be parts of it that you're going to go, oh, I might have to have a conversation with my teenager later about that, all right? So let's read Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to put it on the screen as well for you. You can follow along. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. We're going to read the entire chapter. All right, Genesis chapter 38. It says, at that time, Judah left his brothers. Now, at that time is Joseph has just been sold to the Midianites to be taken to Egypt. You can see that in verse 36 of chapter 37. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua, he took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. 
Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, remember the second son, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight. So he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend, Hira the Adullamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance of a Nahum, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he said. She answered, your signet ring, your cord and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Anayim? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adullamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there's been no cult prostitute there. Judah replied, oh, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord and staff are these? Judah recognised them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back and out came his brother. And she said, what a breakout you've made for yourself. So he was named Perez. 
Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out, and his name was Zira. All right. There is a lot of stuff going on in that story, right? Very easy to lose the plot line in that story because we are sitting there shaking our heads just trying to take in some of what we just read. So I'm going to highlight a couple of important details in the story and while I'm doing that, I want to just connect it back to that theme that I said was so essential, which was covenant blessing. Right? How covenant blessing gets passed down through generations. So let's just highlight chapter 38 in a snapshot. Firstly, Judah finds a wife and conceives three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Who was the firstborn? Ur, then Onan, then Shelah. Who would have received the covenant blessing from Judah? Ur. All right? That's the birth order, and that's the way the covenant blessing should transfer, should it need to. So Judah, who holds the family blessing, the covenant blessing of God, finds a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, and that's where we introduce to this woman, Tamar. We can assume, I would say, that Tamar is also a Canaanite, that's um, Judah married a Canaanite. He was living amongst Canaanites. The Canaanites were one of the host nations in the area that Israel had settled in. That God had said, this is going to be the promised land that I'm going to give you. And it's also a nation that God had forbidden the Israelites to marry with. He said, don't marry with the Canaanites. You'll end up worshipping their gods and you'll, you'll abandon me. Um, Judah marries a Canaanite. We can probably assume that I would say Tamar was a Canaanite also. We're just told that Ur, we don't know what Ur did, but we are told that Ur is evil in God's sight and that the Lord put him to death. So now we know that Tamar is a widow. Tamar's been given to Ur as a wife to produce an offspring, an heir to the blessing. But now Ur is dead. So Judah informs the second son to sleep with Tamar and he hopefully will produce an heir. That's what Judah wants if you read it. You will produce a son, but it won't be your son, he says. You're going to produce a son for Ur. Now this seems pretty strange to us, um, but it was incredibly commonplace in the first century in the Near East. It was a very normal practice in the ancient Near East that existed to ensure that a family line would continue. So any child that would be born to Tamar and the second son, Onan, would have been legally recognised as being Ur's son and therefore would have been the heir to the promise, the blessing. You get that? Now, Onan... He was not entirely happy about this arrangement. Because he's thinking, if no heir is born to my eldest brother, who's going to get the blessing? Right? Onan. The blessing transferred. No heir in the, in the eldest son's line. Therefore, the blessing now comes to me. I will receive the father's blessing. I will receive the covenant blessing of God. And so, Ur acts in a way which is displeasing to the, God, to the Lord. Ur repeatedly has sexual relations with Tamar, but he takes, let's say, certain contraceptive methods to ensure that no child will be born. And Tamar wouldn't fall pregnant. What he's doing, he's, he's manipulating the circumstances to try and receive the blessing himself. I want the blessing, right? I don't want my older brother to have it. This was seen as evil in God's sight, and so the, says the Lord put him to death also. Ur now dead, Onan now dead. This leaves Tamar a widow for a second time. Judah is now suspicious. He suspects that the deaths of his son have something to do with Tamar. And so he says, why don't you go back 
to your father's house and wait till the third son, Sheila, is old enough to get married, which we would assume means that Sheila was still quite young, just a young boy. Um, He's obliged to continue the process with his son to try and produce an heir for the blessing. But he's worried. He devises a plan to install the entire thing and he sends Tamar back to her own father's house to wait. Just wait there till Sheila is old enough to get married, he says. Then we get the passage that says, a long time later. A long time later. Judah's wife dies. His son, Sheila, is grown up. He has never called for Tamar to come back and to officiate the wedding to his third son to try and produce an heir. Tamar's still waiting. And she knows Judah has deceived me. I will never get married. I will never have this blessing. I will never find myself in that situation. So she dresses herself up as a cult prostitute. Um, Usually these cult prostitutes were connected with a temple of some sort to a local god, usually a god of crops or a god of fertility, something to do with growth and reproduction. And one of the things that happened in the, in the Near East in the first century was that there was a, um, a cultic uh, type of attempt to um, honour these gods of fertility by actually you know, having sexual intercourse with a cult prostitute as a way of worship. I think that idea probably was made up by a whole bunch of men. Um, it was a, a, a vile practice and yet Judah, uh, Tamar takes this course of action and Judah uh, walks straight into it. It would seem that Tamar was fairly convinced that all she had to do was dress up like that, sit in the right spot and when Judah walked past he'd just be like, hey, let's worship. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So they end up sleeping together. Uh, she does so with, by still concealing her identity. And she's able to procure certain items from him that are, are identifying. They, they would definitely belong to him and other people would know that they would belong to him. And she obtains that pledge from him. Again, this practice between Tamar and the father-in-law seems extremely distressing to our ears, odd to our ears, but again, the practice was actually fairly commonplace in the first century. If no sons could produce an heir, a father-in-law would try to produce an heir as a surrogate to the, to the, um, the inheritance blessing. Judah hears that Tamar's pregnant, he's angry, accuses her of adultery, demands the death penalty. Before Tamar is sentenced, she produces the three identifying items and says, oh, by the way, the person who got me pregnant owns these. Do you know whose they are? And he's like, oh, I'm done. He knows they're his, and he knows everybody else would know they're his. But interestingly, instead of being angry, He is convicted of his failure to supply Tamar with security and the blessing that she deserves and he pronounces her as being more righteous than than he is. And then Tamar gives birth to twins which leaves the end of the story with still the tension between who's the firstborn? Can you see this theme of the importance of firstborn? It follows all the way through here. So what do we do about Tamar? What do we do about Tamar? What do we do with this story? As soon as chapter 38 closes, we go back to chapter 39, funnily enough, and it just says, now Joseph had been taken to Egypt, and it just picks up the story of Joseph again. And it just follows that story through that we're familiar with. We might be tempted just to close the chapter, literally, on this sordid tale of dysfunction and treat it like just another one of the sort of skeletons in the closet of the family history that we don't like to talk about. We might be tempted to see all the immorality, all the twisted ethics and the selfish motives and block our ears and sort of sing with our children, we don't talk about Tamar, right? (laughs) 
But we would be wrong to do that. We would be wrong to do that. Because it's here. It's here. It is deliberately included in the Genesis narrative. It could have been left out. It could have just been like, well, we don't talk about Tamar. Let's just not write about it, right? But it's here. More than that, Matthew, when he writes his genealogy of Jesus... He reminds his readers that Judah fathered two sons. In fact, he fathered five, right? Ur, Onan, Shelah. They don't get a mention. It says he fathered two sons and he fathered them by Tamar. Matthew goes out on a limb and he says, don't forget about Tamar. Don't ignore her. He doesn't just sweep the story under the historical rug, right? So we shouldn't either. One approach, one approach when we do a character study in the Bible, one approach is to encourage people to copy or to emulate the heroes of the Bible. Right? So we copy the good guys and we treat bad guys in the Bible as a case study of what not to be like as a Christian today. So one way I could apply this story of Tamar is to go, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, right? This approach gives us slogans like, dare to be a Daniel. Daniel's a good guy, so be like Daniel. But what about Tamar? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Who are we supposed to be like in this story? Right? Um, who acts maybe as a warning to us? Is Judah the good guy or not? What about Tamar? We're supposed to be like her? She's declared as more righteous in this story. Should we be encouraging our people to do whatever it takes if you have good motives? Is Tamar a heroine in this story or is she a villain? So the question remains, what do we do about Tamar? So let me suggest to you a better way to deal with character studies in the Bible. Yes, we can learn from the moral victories and the failures of Bible characters. But more than that, we can look to see what they reveal about the character of God and more specifically how they point us forward to see something important about Jesus. So there are gospel truths in Tamar's story. There are gospel truths in Tamar's story. Now, the entire story of the Bible is ultimately a story about Jesus. Jesus told his disciples everything written, everything written in the law and the prophets was written about me. That's what Jesus told his disciples. So what gospel images, what gospel parallels can we see in Tamar's story that might point us forward to a coming saviour, right? What is there that we can see in this story that might help us see through the story and look to Jesus? That's my goal. After all, Tamar is one of the threads of scandalous grace that Matthew weaves together in his genealogy to say, this is the story of Jesus and Tamar is a part of it. All right, I've got three images from this story that I think parallel and show us something about a gospel theme. Here's the first one. God fulfills his plans despite man's deception and active rebellion. All right? God fulfills his plans despite man's deception and active rebellion. That's my first gospel image that I want you to see in Tamar, which we see more beautifully in the story of the gospel. So here's, here's what I mean by that. God's purposes and plans stand firm and complete no matter what is thrown at them. And we can, we can literally bank on that, okay? 
that the whole Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Judah's story is a story of perpetual deception. Every generation, this whole thing could have crumbled and fall. Remember, God went to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant promise with you, a blessing to you. I will not fail. And it seems like every generation that followed it did everything they could to destroy it. There was deception and trickery. It was just an absolute mess. But no matter what is thrown against them, God's purposes and plans stand firm and complete. At every stage, God's promised blessing seems under threat. And yet God is always able to fulfill his purposes and plans. So in Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 through 7, it says this, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. We see the character of God coming through in the story of Tamar. There's deception and trickery. There's moral stuff that's going on. There's terrible things that occur in this story. God's blessing, God's promise seems under threat. Yet, God creates a way. Even the most unlikely circumstances. In the New Testament, Jesus is described like this. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and to Christ's endurance. We heard about endurance this morning. Christ endures. God's love endures. No matter what is thrown against it, what promises are made by God stand firm. Jesus endures. The writer of the Hebrew says, in him we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's what God is like. That's what you can trust Jesus to be like. I read this quote from a guy by the name of David Mathis, who's a writer for a website called Desiring God. I loved it. It says, Satan cannot chase away God's covenant love. He can't chase away the trying circumstances. How severe. His love is steadfast. Jesus won't change his mind tomorrow about his own. He knows you through and through. He already knows the you of tomorrow and all your forthcoming failures. And if you are his, he has set his steadfast love on you, come what may. He loves his own today and will keep loving them tomorrow. As challenges arrive, as resistance comes, as reasons to the contrary emerge, he will not cave in, give in or quit. His love will hold firm, secure, stable, settled and steadfast. So there's my first point. God fulfills his plans despite man's deception and active rebellion. Here's the second image of the gospel that I want you to see in this story. God includes the outsider and the outcast in his purposes for salvation. God includes the outsider and the outcast in his purposes for salvation. God loves to include the outsider and the outcast. Right? The Bible is filled with example after example of God gathering in those who have been excluded. Tamar is one of these stories. Tamar the Canaanite. Right? Tamar the widow. Tamar the exploited. But it was this very Tamar that is grafted into the story of Jesus and honoured for her quest for righteousness, for what was right. God not only loves to include the contrast, but he has deliberately shaped the gospel message to have at its heart good news 
for those in the margins. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says this, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. This is the shape of the gospel, a God who includes deliberately and with joy those who are the outcasts, those who have been set aside. Paul would later say in the second letter to the Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. This is the way of God. It seems upside down to us, right? It's the way of his grace. We live in a world where the biggest and the best and the brightest succeed. While the littlest and the least and the last, they all get trampled. But Jesus disrupts that. And he interrupts our quest for power and our lust for significance. And the ways of this world are rebuked by the inverted ways of Jesus. I would say that pure Christianity, right from the very beginning, has always prized weakness and turned away any signal and sign of our own strength. One of my other favourite writers, a guy by the name of D.A. Carson, says this, God has not arranged things so that the foolishness of the gospel saves those of us with an IQ above 130. Where would that leave the rest of us? Nor does the foolishness of what is preached transform the young, the beautiful, the extroverts, the educated, the healthy, the wealthy, the upright. Where would that leave the old, the ugly, the illiterate, the introverts, the poor, the sick and the perverse? God includes the outsider and the outcast in his purposes for salvation. We see it in the story of Tamar. We see it in the story of the gospel. Here's the last echo that I want you to see. In the story of Tamar, we see a foreshadow of the gospel story, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. You think about this. Tamar deliberately and willingly places herself in the position of the accused. But instead, actually reveals justice to obtain the promised inheritance. Right? Tamar knew that by taking the course of action that she did, by dressing as the cult prostitute, by going down and sleeping with her father-in-law, to obtain a child an heir to the blessing, it would place her in immediate risk, immediate vulnerability. Tamar deliberately and willingly goes to a place of vulnerability and risk, even the risk of death. Do you remember what happened as soon as Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant? Bring her out, burn her alive. And Tamar knew that's exactly what would happen when people found out that she was pregnant when she had been acting the way that she had, Tamar knew, and yet she willingly and deliberately places herself in that position to obtain something. And what was it? She was seeking righteousness, justice. She was seeking the heir of the promised blessing. Tamar willingly, deliberately places herself in harm's way to secure justice for herself and her offspring. Isn't this what Jesus did for you? Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. 
He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquities of all. Or Paul would describe it in the New Testament like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a far more pure and a far more beautiful way, Jesus, just like Tamar, deliberately and willingly places himself in the position of the accused. But instead, in that very moment, reveals justice to secure something for us. What? The blessing of God. The inheritance of God's purpose and plan. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. And Peter quotes Isaiah. Jesus willingly goes to a place of vulnerability. Jesus willingly goes to a place of being the accused. The sinless one was pointed at and said, this man will not reign over us. This man is a sinner. We're going to put him on a cross. Jesus willingly and deliberately takes that position of vulnerability, the position of the accused, and he does it to secure an inheritance for you. And I see that in the story of Tamar. Here's another quote that I read by a guy that I really enjoy reading, Brian Rosner, and he wrote an article at the Gospel Coalition. It says this, It isn't that we knew nothing of God before Christ's death. His providential care for creation reveals his love. His promise to Abraham shows his concern for the whole world. But at the cross, we see the climax of his covenants with Israel. And we witness the final and dramatic proof of his love and justice. Two texts from Romans make this clear. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 and 8. Christ's death puts beyond all doubt the fact that God loves us. We can trust that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will also graciously give us all things. So the story of Tamar, it's tragic. Tamar in that story is very little apart from people's property. Men seeking to control her life. But what we see in Tamar and through and beyond the story of Tamar is an echo, a foreshadow of a beautiful story of the gospel. The story of Tamar is tragic, and yet even this tragedy is spun about with grace and woven into this great tapestry of God's love for and his salvation of his people, right? And so I want you to read the story of Tamar Don't ignore it. Next time you're telling the story of Joseph, don't skip chapter 38. But look through this story 
and see a greater story that's unfolded. The story of a God who fulfills his plans despite man's deception and active rebellion. He always will. You can count on that. Who includes the outsider and the outcast for his purposes for salvation. He included Tamar. Has he included you? The outcast? The one set aside maybe? He has. He longs to. And thirdly, I want you to see Jesus in this story. Who willingly and deliberately places himself in the position of the accused. But in that moment reveals justice to secure God's promised inheritance for you. Eternal life, righteousness and salvation. Let's thank him. Lord, thank you for Tamar. It's a messy story. But we want to honour her. We, we don't necessarily look at this story and say, well, we just want to be like Tamar. But we do want to learn the lessons of this story and we want to see you in it. I thank you that your purposes were fulfilled no matter what happened. You did it in Tamar's life. You've done it consistently down through the generations and you can do it now. You always fulfill your purposes and for that, we worship you. We thank you that you have included the outcast, the set aside, the abandoned, and you have sought us out and you've included us in your story of salvation. I thank you that you did it for Tamar. I thank you that you've done it for me. Lord, I pray that there be many people in this room right now able to say amen. And Lord, I thank you that in Jesus we saw in the story of Tamar, one who would deliberately place himself into a position of vulnerability and to, to place himself as the position of the accused in order to secure the blessing, not just for himself, but for all who would call on his name. And so in his name we pray, in his name we give thanks and worship you this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Amen.